just a privilege to be with you. It's so great to be up here with my dear friend Tom. Tom has six children. I have seven children. He has six girls. I have four girls and three boys, three grandchildren. Yes, that's one. How many have grandchildren? That's wonderful, isn't it? I love being here because I'm not, I'm not the oldest person at this conference. I mean, that just makes me feel better. In our every nation world, I am the oldest member of our leadership team at 60. Everywhere I go, I'm like the oldest person. So I can look at them and say, I'm young again. I just love it. But anyway, we just had our third grandchild. And that's, this is bigger news than this word, honestly. And he was born in Al-Mufarak on the Syrian border where my son is a missionary among Muslims, has been for years, fluent in Arabic. He and his wife making lots of disciples. And 10 pounds, 8 ounces, born in the bathtub on the Syrian border. So um, I'm really excited about that, that we have to have two granddaughters. And Tom's second daughter, Mariah, and my youngest daughter, Katie, are really best friends. And she just lived there in Edinburgh for a year, had her greatest church experience ever. And uh, she's on the way. Her, her 21st birthday present was to go to Japan and see Tom's daughter, Mariah, that's coming on. How you raise your girls in Europe and they all get called to Asia is beyond me. But anyway, good job. So it's so much for that. Let's pray. Father, I just really thank you um, for uh, what you're doing, the, the privilege of being here. I remember the times I came here as a younger man. Lord, uh, Father, my 20s, 30s, and saw you do things here, and I'm so thankful for that. And here I am, Lord, now 52 years serving you, standing here, and it's a privilege. Amen. Our theme is the preeminence of Jesus, and I'll turn in the word first and then maybe prophesy over a few of you, and tomorrow morning I'll maybe prophesy first and speak, but I'm going to entitle these two messages, Walking with Jesus at the Midnight Hour. And I, I want to start by talking about the promise of where we are that I hear from Jesus and tomorrow morning, I want to talk about the pressure of where we are and how do we walk through that with Jesus. How many of you have found some pretty unbearable pressure in this hour? And it's, it's, it's not exaggerated. There's lots of spiritual warfare, and there's lots of formation going on. Interesting verse in Isaiah 21, 11 through 12. It says, a prophecy against Duma. Someone calls to me from Seir. Watchman, what is left of the night? Watchman, what is left of the night? The watchman replies, morning is coming but also the night. If you'd ask, then ask, come back again. I'm asked all the time, you know, when's it going to be light? It's really dark. And the answer in this question, what's coming? Morning is coming, but also the night. I want to describe where we are as a church, and this term is used a lot, but I think it's apropos. We've come to a very unique midnight hour in our country and in the world. I mean by that, a new day is dawning. It's just too dark to see it. And I'll tell you, even though we cannot see it, Jesus is at work in unprecedented ways in our world, all around us. As we came into this decade, as Tom knows, the Lord met me five times, all around 4.30 in the morning to talk to him about this decade. And, and basically, I put in writing a number of things I felt, one being what was going to happen in the Arab world and the shaking in governments, and, and so we're seeing that. And you know, many are, are so afraid now of um, ISIS and what's happening and what's going to happen here. And, if you've got a new grandson on the Syrian border, you, can, you wonder about that from time to time. I was in Syria, on the Syrian border a few months ago, interviewing refugees that are now disciples of Christ. It's honestly mind-boggling what Jesus is doing. There's never been so many Muslims saved in all of human history as there are today. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me that during this decade that the, the sin of jihadist fundamentalism would come to the top 
and God himself would judge it. And I think we're going to see that. This is not a day to be alarmed. 2012, first couple days of the year, sitting on my couch, the Holy Spirit came to me and said, I'm going to talk to you about Europe. I saw the Russian bear rise up then three years ago now and basically sweep with his paw. The Lord said, Russia's coming to regain his place in Europe. I saw something come and break his arm. God said, but I'll break the arm of the bear. Don't be afraid when it happens. Let me tell you in the middle of what seems so dark right now, Jesus is at work. This is no time to be afraid. I was in Berlin recently and the Lord had spoken to me in that same time he was talking. I'm going to raise up Germany as a counterbalance to Russia as America pivots out. This was three years ago. And I was in Berlin, and when I was in Berlin, the day I got there, the foreign minister of Russia and the foreign minister of Ukraine were coming to talk, and everyone in Berlin was afraid. Well, you know, God uses that kind of fear to plow nations open. Put your eye on Europe as we come to the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. Watch what God does in Europe. Many are just bemoaning, you know, America's gotten so rotten, and what's going to happen in America? You know, the fact of it is, sin in the end becomes its own worst enemy. And here's why. Sin is so effective at killing joy, at killing hope, at killing life. This is what happens. In the life of a nation or the life of the world, there's a cycle. It goes from ripe, and many of us who were part of the charismatic renewal, I was baptized in the Holy Spirit in 1972. As a young Baptist boy, my dad was the head of the deacon church and said there would be no speaking in tongues as long as he was the head deacon. Deacons are like popes, if you understand that, especially head deacons. Of course, my mom snuck out and got baptized in the Spirit and kind of wrecked his whole theory. And the Holy Ghost hit him back in the 1960s. All night long, he shook like a leaf under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, he went to bed a Baptist and woke up with tongues. I mean, God just, she said, God shook the Baptist out of me. And so I was part of the Jesus movement, the charismatic renewal. So I know what it is where something's ripe for harvest. Well, something can be ripe for harvest and something, then something gets rotten. And when that comes, we get so afraid. Well, all rottenness is overripe because the fruit either didn't respond or wasn't picked. And there's a rottenness in America that concerns us now. But beneath the surface, when something gets rotten enough, it produces compost that something happens in the soil which is enriching it. And all around nations where you see rottenness beneath the surface, something's happening in the soil. Jesus, he's at work. And I want to talk to you, what is he doing? What's he doing with you and I? Many of you are in, in agony over a child or a grandchild tonight. We look at the millennial generation and some of them and it's like they've kind of fallen through the cracks of the church. We agonize over that. So where is Jesus when it's dark? As much as we don't like darkness, the fact of it is it's the canopy for some of God's greatest masterpieces. And typically before great moments of life and light, there's dark. You know, I was born again in the Baptist church 52 years ago at 8. I was baptized in the spirit in the fire of the charismatic renewal. And I believe I'll live to see another period of time like that. And what seems so dark now, what seems so hard now, behind the scenes, God is moving. I want to talk to you about four things I see Jesus doing at the midnight hour. What is our Savior doing like? 
What is he up to? Why is that important? Because Jesus said, whatever I see my dad do, I do. And beloved, whatever I see Jesus do, I want to do. I'm going to talk to you tomorrow about how do we walk with Jesus through a time of pressure. But I felt to start with promise, and we're going to just, there's a number of places where I want to just look at four. Turn to Matthew 25, and I want to look at four of the places in the New Testament tonight where Jesus talks, where they talk about the midnight hour, starting with one of the two times Jesus talked about it in Matthew 25. And I just felt to start here, and we'll see where this goes. Jesus likens the kingdom of heaven in Matthew 25, 1. He says, it's going to be like ten virgins and who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. I'll read this quickly and we'll just talk about it in a moment. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take away any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up, trimmed the lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, give us some of your oil, lamps are going out. No, they replied, they may not be enough for both of us. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. While they're on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived, the virgins were ready, went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Basically, back in ancient days, betrothal and engagement was much different. When a young man and woman became betrothed, it was basically like they were married. They didn't consummate until they were married, but it was serious. Like, if you were unfaithful sexually, it was... It's considered adultery even during the betrothal, and it's a very, very, you know, hard thing. And so, but after the end of the engagement period, many times at night, the groom would come for the bride, and all the bride's friends would be around her. And when they heard his voice, they would light the torches, which basically have these torches, which had oil on them, and they'd have, hopefully have a vessel of oil with them to dip that torch into the oil light it, and have a procession so in the middle of the darkness there could be light brought to what the groom was doing. Now, what is this saying to us? Jesus says, I've got ten virgins, all pure. I'm sitting out looking at pure people tonight. You love God. Many of you have been waiting for years for another move of the Spirit in your church. Another move. And all of a sudden it says, though, that Part of these virgins were wise and part of these virgins were foolish. And only there was only one thing that made the difference. Five of them had the oil of the anointing and five of them had run dry. Five of them did not have enough oil. And beloved, you know, it is so easy to get oil when there's revival. It's just so easy to get oil where there's a big conference. It's so easy. But the hard time to get oil is when the bridegroom seems slow in coming and it's dark. And the Bible says the lamp of a man or woman, the spirit of a man or woman is the lamp of the Lord. Now, that place for Christ in your new nature, your lamp, without oil, it cannot burn. And if it can't burn, it can't shine. And many of you, you would feel tonight, man, Jim, God's just been long in coming to my situation. It is dark. It is long. In my church, in my business, with this child, you're virgin, you're pure, you love Christ. But before you know it, his voice is going to ring out. It said that the virgin slumber. I'm not talking about the second coming. I'm talking about him coming afresh to do something. Amen. And in that darkness, it seemed to tarry so long, even these virgins fell asleep. And all of a sudden, they heard the voice. The groom is coming. 
And when they heard that voice, it was a moment in time where Jesus was coming afresh for his bride and he needed the church to shine the light of the anointing on what he was doing in the darkness so no one would miss it. You know, and one thing the Lord told me coming this decade, he said, as you come in the last part of this decade, I'm going to release evangelism over this nation that you'll see statistical proof of. And I believe it. In the middle of the dark, the voice of Jesus is going out to claim his bride. The problem is, has the church maintained the anointing to light in the middle of the darkness what he's doing? Now, it's interesting. When this moment came, the five unwise virgins went to the five wise and said, we need oil. The problem is many, and, and their answer was interesting. Their answer was, you know, we don't know if we have enough for you. You need to go to the buyers and sellers of oil and get some. There are moments in time where you're just not going to get the anointing from a person. It's just not going to come from a sermon. It's not going to come from a message. It's just not that simple. Who sells oil? Some of the commentators said, well, it can't be God. He doesn't sell things. How many of you know the gospel may be free, but it'll cost you everything to enjoy its fullness? Where do you get oil? You get oil from the Holy Spirit. It's really, really simple. And how do you maintain the oil when things dry out in your church? How do you maintain the oil of the Spirit when you've been waiting decades? When you know you, when you're born in the fire, something like the charismatic renewal, and you taste something like that, you know what's real and you know what's not. A lot of things they call revival these days, there may be trickles and they may be raindrops, but they're not that. And so how do you maintain the anointing when he's long in coming? How do you maintain the oil when you have this promise that's not yet fulfilled and you've grown weary waiting? How do you maintain the anointing? You go to the cellar. How do we receive oil from the Holy Spirit even when it's dark? and even when it's hard. Well, there's a lot of metaphors for that in the New Testament. Feeding on Christ, abiding in the vine, drinking and worshiping. It's very simple. When you and I were born again, we received a new nature and our human spirit was reconnected with the Holy Spirit. That's just the fact of it is. We were re-plugged into the very power of the Godhead. You said, if that's the case, where's the oil? Here is the problem. What the Bible calls drinking and feeding are metaphors for the spiritual disciplines. And every time I worship, every time I listen, every time I speak that word, read that word, fellowship with another believer, listen to a podcast, go to church, any time I approach Christ, something happens. And the very power and life of the Godhead are released into me. That oil flows in me. No matter how long it may be for you, no matter how long his promise seems to be from coming tonight, no matter how dark it is, make no mistake, he's on the move. Make no mistake, he's doing unprecedented things in our world right now. Things beyond our comprehension. You know, I, I've lived as a missionary in a war zone. I know it isn't uh, more things fighting for children to live, wife with cancer twice. I, I understand pressure and stress. But I'll tell you, Every time I approach him, every time I pray in tongues, every time I confess that word, every time I slow down and wait on him, the anointing, the oil of God freshly flows into me. It just flows over to me because I know many times Christ does his greatest work 
in my darkest moments. He calls to me, speaks to me. Beloved, I know it feels like he's tarried. When is this going to happen again? When is God going to move again? Oh, make no mistake about it. I believe I'll live again to hear his voice calling out his bride. And when I do, I want to have plenty of oil to burn afresh. Now, the second thing we find, and this is interesting, the second promise we find or that, think, that interests me is over in Acts 16. And this is a story that happened at the midnight hour, and I want to speak it to you. It's very interesting. In Acts 16, we come to the story of Paul and Silas, and they were in prison. And you know the story. And in Acts 16, beginning in verse 22, the crowd joins in the attack against Paul and Silas. You know, how many of you find, you know, it can be a little disappointing when Jesus calls you into something that doesn't go what you, like you expected? I mean, Paul had seen the man from Macedonia, big apostolic call. I'm calling you. He got so excited. You know, they went all over there to Philippi and, oh, my God, the Lord was moving and it was astonishing. And, but not going to end up quite the way they expected. And the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they'd been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them at the inner cell and fastened their feet in stocks. How many of this is a fairly bad dilemma? I mean, the church had been growing, great meeting, a little kind of a demonic encounter, and now they're beaten, they're whipped as Roman citizens stuck down, Paul a Roman citizen, stuck down in the dungeon. And about midnight, at the midnight hour, God comes to rescue us from things where there seems to be no hope. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. How many of you know it's in your greatest pain you get your greatest audience? We think it's when we're really prosperous and when everything's going well we get an audience. Maybe so. But it's when we're in agony and we're facing something that's hurting us, and many of you have gone through great, terrible pain, that people really watch to see if Christ is with you. But in the middle of that pain, in the middle of that agony, in the middle of that doctor's report, you're done, or we think the cancer's gone to your wife's lymph nodes, or your wife's brains, or your son who went off to play college football at 228 pounds and now is 107 pounds, a parasite killing him on the mission field. We don't know what to do for him. It's that those moments, the old strokes, so they still work. It's that Paul and Silas were praising and worshiping in the middle of that hell, and everyone was listening. When I, I'll never forget one night holding Robert, who played college football, 228 pounds. He's now 107 pounds. He's in my arms, skin and bones. Got a parasite on a mission trip. You tell me, mission trips are supposed to be good for your kids. And I'm holding him in skin and bones, tears falling down in his body. One of my lifetime covenant friends called me. I said, man, I said, brother, I said, Robert, there's no answer for him. He said, Jimmy, pray in tongues. Thank God for tongues. But how quickly we forget the lessons he burned into our soul. Praise lights the fuse for your deliverance, no matter how long it takes. In the middle of that, I just begin to worship in tongues. In the middle of that, I just begin to praise him. And as I did, the presence of Christ began to flow down into me. And Robert today is 
God's touched him physically and healed him. Now, beloved, there's no one like our Savior. A few months ago, I hit one of the worst six-hour period of my life. A massive ministry crisis, massive financial crisis. I mean, just everything was going wrong. And I got in the car, Holy Spirit said, don't dare talk. You'll, you'll ruin this with your mouth. Just speak the scriptures. How quickly we forget prison to praise, power of praise, all the things God taught us. And at the midnight hour, when it's darkest in your life, and when it's hardest in your life, you've got your biggest audience. And if you'll praise, and if you'll worship, when you don't know what else to do, when nothing else makes sense, beloved, you just begin to worship him. You just begin to praise him. You just begin to cry out to him and watch God come. Now, this is what is so interesting. When I look at this, about midnight, they were singing and praising. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Paul said, don't harm yourself, we're here. Typically, when it's darkest and when it's hardest, and when your suffering makes almost no sense to you, when you can't figure out why am I suffering, it's because many times it's not just about you. And the deliverance that God's going to work in your life is for everyone who's watching you, and they're all around you. I'm here to tell you, that's just the way it works. When, you know, when, when Kathy was getting healed from cancer, they were radiating her. They gave her a stroke when they radiated and gave her epilepsy 12 years. I mean, she couldn't drive for years. She'd have strokes leading intercession, strokes, you know, strokes from seizures. Man, we couldn't figure it out. I mean, I, I'm still hoping the woman will sin once so I'll feel better about myself. It didn't make sense. But during that time, we adopted three older girls into our family that we never would have met if she wouldn't have gotten sick. I heard her pray once, Lord, don't heal me till I, unless if there's one more girl to adopt. I said, wait a minute, baby. You get well, we'll quit adopting. We'll keep adopting, I promise. But what do you find? At the midnight hour, when it doesn't make sense, you praise, you worship, you're lighting the fuse of the release of God's earthquake power. It shook it to the very foundations. It shook it. Beloved, those old strokes still work. They work just as well. I know it is. The doctors look at me and say, there's no hope for you physically. Quit the ministry for two years. Your health is destroyed. I've had more crazy things. I lay dying with hepatitis, done, gone, liver destroyed. Jesus walked right into my room, healed me by his miracle power. Listen, at the midnight hour, Everything seems to be chaining you. You feel like that one I love, Jim. At the midnight hour, he does his greatest works of deliverance. He moves in his greatest power. There's no one like him. There's no one like this Jesus. Jesus told him, he said, in John, it's, 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 there's coming a time when it's going to be too dark to see. And if you don't listen to me now, you'll not be children of the light. You see, when it gets too dark to see, the light on the inside, the light of God's word guides us anyway. Now watch this. The third thing I want to look at in this 
is found in, in Acts. Let me look here a moment. Here we go. Look in Acts 20, 7 through 11. So look at four things that happened at midnight and just apply them prophetically. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room, and we were meeting, and, spread in a win- and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. As Paul talked on and on, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said, he's alive. Then he went upstairs again, broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left, and the people took the young man home, and he was greatly comforted at midnight. This is, I'm just going to provide this prophetically as the Lord spoke it to me. We're living in a time when thousands of young people have dropped through cracks in the church. It's just a fact. Many of us have lost children, grandchildren. Many are riding off the millennial generation, the most godless generation, the most atheistic generation, the most unchurched generation. Oh, be very careful. At the midnight hour, the Eutychus generation that's fallen out of the church to their death will be resurrected. I tell you by the Holy Spirit, don't give up on this millennial generation. I tell you by the Spirit of God, at the midnight hour, they were born in the shadow of 9-11, born into terrible economies, born into a time with no revival fire burning in their life. At the midnight hour, a spirit of resurrection will touch that generation. Touch that generation. I, the Lord spoke to me in a dream. and I don't really share dreams publicly, but I'll share this one. I, 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 w- I was in a dream, and I, and I was in this massive megachurch. And there was a, there was a, a, a they were there for a big famous Christian concert. And I was sitting with a pastor friend of mine, happened to be South Africa. I looked at him and said, man, I'd sure hate to be the pastor of this church. They got this big band in and no one's here. And this band got up, they were obviously European. And um, I guess if I knew anything about Christian bands, which don't, they're probably pretty famous. They kind of got out and they began to look around and there's just, there are about maybe 100 pastors in this church that seat 10,000. The concert thing just wasn't working and they said, you know, you know, this kind of, you know, not as many here as we expected, but so be it. And they had a good spirit. And next thing I knew, they be, the drummer ripped off his snare drum um, off the stand, and they began to march toward us. And they turned into like a little drum and bugle corps, and they marched right through the ranks, hit the back wall, and turned around. And they reminded me of that famous painting, The Spirit of, 19, of 1776. And that was really, that, that picture was painted after the revolutionary, pardon me, after the Civil War by a young man, and in that is his, his grandfather, his dad, and him, basic. It's a three-generation picture. And they turned this, this core and began to march back toward me, and as they did, every exit flew open, and thousands of young people poured into the church, and God said, they may not come to a concert, but they'll come to a revolution. And I'll tell you, watch what God does. Watch what he does. I know many of you are agonizing over someone in that generation tonight. One of your grandkids, one of your children, they seemingly fall into their death and they're spiritually dead before your very eyes. And to make it worse, they fell right out of church, fell right through youth group, fell right in the middle of the sermon. I'll tell you, beloved, 
God is coming to reclaim a Eutychus generation and to greatly comfort you. I felt to speak this tonight. Listen to me. Don't give up. Don't give up on that young person you're praying for tonight. Don't give up. Tom and I, we minister together. We work on 750 universities around the world. God is not done with young people. We wonder why do so many, we, we realize now that more than 60% of them just leave, more than massive amounts of them leave the church when they hit college. Most never come back. God's not said the final amen on that yet. Watch what he does. This Jesus is so powerful, he can raise the dead. I never cease to be amazed at how stupid the devil can be. He <laughs> thinks death is the greatest force in the world. It's not. Resurrection is always greater. Always greater. Always greater. So that old young Eutychus fell out of the window, hit the street, and died. And young Paul went and put his arms around him. Watch, let me read this to you again. I want you to capture this. Let me tarry here a moment more. It says right here, and it's very interesting, in Acts 20, with this young man, it says, Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed. He said, he's alive. Now watch me. It's when that generation seems deadest, they need your arms the most. When a kid is dead spiritually, they need your arms more than your preaching. They need you to lay your life down for them more than they need what they should be doing or when are they going to respond or when are they going to be spiritual. When the church puts their arms around a dead generation, resurrection power is going to come. It's going to come by the Spirit. It's going to come by His grace. Many of you have a Eutychus sitting here tonight. How many of you have a young person in this generation you're believing for? Raise your hand right now. Almost every one of us. Let's, let's agree right now. Holy Spirit, I want you to hold that name up before the Lord whether it's your grandson, your granddaughter, your son, your daughter, your nephew, your niece, daughter-in-law, 30-something down, I'll make, extend the generation a bit, 30 down roughly, by the Holy Spirit, I'm speaking to every Eutychus in this room tonight. By the Holy Spirit of God, I want to thank you in the midnight hour you come to resurrect them, in the midnight hour you come to touch them. And Father, tonight as men and women, as parents, as grandparents, God as great-grandparents, some of us, well, we just put our arms around this generation by your Spirit, and we say this is going to be a God-touched generation. This is going to be, their angst is going to be turned into a holy anger against sin. Father, their passivity is going to rise up to purpose. We call them into it. In Jesus' name. Now I want to look at one more story that's in the midnight hour. And look with me in Acts 27. This is a, this is a profound story. Scholars debate whether this was Paul's kind of last voyage. They debate whether he was killed in Rome or near the, the first visit or the second visit. I'm not going to argue that tonight. Whatever be the case, it was coming toward the end of his ministry, and he basically was put on a boat. And this boat basically represented the might of Rome. He was a prisoner. But under, under Roman law, he had appealed to Caesar, and to Caesar he was going. 
Now, to make it worse, when he got on that boat with all the pomp and circumstance of Rome and all their soldiers and maybe the century that had been assigned to guard these prisoners, he warned them, if we go in this direction, we're done. There's nothing worse than realizing you're going in a direction that's going to wreck that which you're on and be stuck. And many of you feel that way about our country just right now. Feel like, man, we're going in a direction, Pastor Jim. It's, we're losing God's blessing. We're going to get his judgment. We're heading to moral decay. So Paul is imprisoned on his ship. It's like many, many women I know who, who are in a marriage and the husband doesn't want to turn to Christ. And they feel like, man, we're going towards shipwreck. Now here is God. And the Lord has stuck Paul on a ship that he knows is going for disaster. And sure enough, they leave the port, and a 14-day hurricane hits that ship. And you read the story for yourself. It is so dark, they lose all ability to navigate. All ability to navigate. But when the darkness comes... In the middle of that voyage, I want you to watch what happens because I believe it's prophetic for where we are. It starts with a gentle south wind. See the opportunity. They take off. Paul's been warning them. As we pass through the lee of an island called Clauda, hardly able to make the light boat secure. Men, they didn't know what to do. 18 took such a violent battering from the storm. The next day, they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared. But now I urge you, keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar, and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as I told, he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground. Now, the longer this storm lasts, you begin to find that Paul goes from the prisoner to the pilot, and by the end of the story, he is the captain ordering the Romans to stay on the ship if they want to live. Now, I tell you by the Holy Spirit, this ship, in the end, runs aground. You know the story. It runs aground. And you have to ask yourself, like two or three things. You have to ask yourself, why did Paul put his choice servant in the, on a boat that God himself knew would wreck? It's because 276 people who did not know Christ would have been died and lost for eternity if he wasn't on that boat. That boat was off course. Winds. It hit a sandbar. The bottom ripped out of it. And Paul and the prisoners basically were thrown overboard, jumped overboard. And Paul found himself, God's choice apostle, in the Mediterranean Sea, holding on to a piece of wood washed up on the shores of Malta, where a healing revival broke out. The power of God shook that island. I tell you this by the Holy Spirit. There are storms coming to this nation that will so paralyze the leaders of the ship of state that Christians will find their voice again because we're the only ones with the peace 
in the answer. I know everything seems out of control right now. I know spiritual hurricanes are ripping through the ship of state. I know we all realize that despite the good economic indicators, our economy is a house of cards. Any small businessman knows that. We all know when we look at our country, we realize, my God, this thing is gone crazy. We feel voiceless. Our historic landmarks stripped out of our country. But I'll tell you, beloved, listen to me now. In the middle of this storm, and trust me, storms are on the way, but we're going to find our voice because when people are afraid and out of answers, they listen. Listen, God will put you in businesses. God will put you in sectors of the economy. God will put you in places. It'll make no sense to you. How could God put me here? How could God put me in this business, this city, this church? Because when things seem out of control, God needs his choicest saints. Now, I'll also say this. I remember when this last great recession came out, I had friends that were headed toward bankruptcy, losing everything. I mean, you would have thought, my gosh, the ship is running aground. I watched their stories. Why didn't God rescue everyone out of the Great Recession? Because there were hundreds of other people whose ships were sinking, and if there weren't some Christians sinking with them, how would they be saved? But I watched my friends, businesses crushed, bottoms ripped out. They floated to the top. They thought they were washed out, but they were washed onto their next Malta and they're prospering today. Hear me now. At the midnight hour, ships of state run aground. At the midnight hour, at the midnight hour, hurricane winds blow. But it's in that dark hour that people with light find their voice. Don't be afraid. Before the last election, some months before, I was praying. And I looked and I saw Obama in the White House. And that, that honestly, if you voted for him, that's fine. That was, that's not who, what I was choosing at that time. And, and I saw him and, and I, I mean, I'm a heart sank. Spirit of prophecy came and he said, God said, Jimmy said, woe be to the man in the White House during that term. And I saw the White House collapse down on top of him as he, as he hid under his desk. I saw unbearable, massive pressure come against him that paralyzed him. I wouldn't want to be president today. But God's on the move. Trust me, beloved. God's in these hurricanes. You say, what if the ship of state runs aground? If it runs aground, we got Malta coming next. Many of you feel like, man, I'm washed up. Maybe what's going to happen? Trust me, trust me, trust me. Paul had a plan to go to Rome. God had a plan to take him to Malta. Malta became a Christian bastion that basically stopped some of the spread of Islam for many, many years. At the midnight hour, God does amazing things. It's dark right now. So what? It's always dark at dawn. It's always dark when the light comes. I've been a Christian 52 years now. I, I got to at least keep on as long as, as Brother Charles. I'm, I got to preach, he's 77. I've got to preach strong at least till 80. One of my dear friends, Emmanuel Canestrace, I don't know if you know him, we, we preach together every year at a great conference. He's at 83, 84 now. I watched him dance under the spirit for about 20 minutes the other day, just dancing. I, I, th I think maybe he's like Enoch. He might just kind of fly off one day. Who knows? But listen to me now. 
in this dark hour, there is tremendous promise. At this hour when it seems too dark to see, oh man, Jesus is doing some of his greatest work. What's he doing? He's coming to freshly call out a bride. He's coming for a fresh wave of evangelism in the darkest places of the world. Let me tell you. The Lord spoke to me recently. He said, you know, Jimmy, he said, some of these places, it seems so hard. I said, yeah. Well, I said, what's that all about? He said, Jimmy, he said, I'm, I'm resting the soil. Some of the places where there was great revival, he said, Jim, beneath the surface, surface things are changing, and I'm re-enriching that soil for evangelism. He said, the problem is, though, Jimmy, he said, their reputation is keeping church planters from going there. I heard more prophecies about the Ivy League. And finally, one of, the, one, of the, one of the worship leaders under Tom in Scotland got called to go to plant a church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in between Harvard and MIT. Denominations have stopped planting churches there. Nothing happens there. He's three and a half years into it. Last Easter, had 750 people. You go there with 150 Harvard students sitting in the church. Why? In that historic bed of revival, God is moving again. Oh, it's dark. But the devil never realizes, we're just not afraid of the dark. One of the mottos of the American army in Afghanistan because of all this night vision equipment is, we rule the dark. That's my motto. We're the light of the world. The light's in me. When it's dark, I see fine. And here's what I see. Jesus is coming to call afresh for evangelism. Do you have enough oil to be a light in the dark? Two. He's not only coming to call freshly for evangelism. Beloved, he's also calling up his Eutychuses. He's going to get them. He's going to get this generation. He's going to touch this generation. Do not give up. He's also supernaturally moving in the ship estate. He's touching it. He's moving on it. He's doing things in this country. I've prophesied over politicians and spoken into governments. Someone said, do you want to meet the president? I said, no. Not, I would if God wanted me to. I'd rather disciple the next one. And I'll tell you, beloved, I have the privilege of pouring my life into so many extraordinary young God-called politicians, young men and women. I saw in a vision Lady Liberty lying prostrate, American flag around her. She was in heavy birth pangs. I said, what's happening? God said, I'm birthing a new generation of politicians who love purity more than party, who love me and follow me. Don't give up, Jim. Don't give up. I sit like Tom does around these bright young faces and see their callings and hear their heart just negotiating their way through a world that's hard hard to figure out, no matter what's imprisoning you, no matter how deep your dungeon may feel, praise really does work. Worship really does work. Amen. It does work, even though it doesn't feel like it. I've tasted death, lay dying, fought for sons, 
buried friends, had scary cancer reports. Praise works. Worship works. And heck, face it, if we die, what's so bad about that? We go to heaven. Go to glory. I buried my 24-year-old brother. The last living son of my Christian parents, they buried three sons. Same church, decades, third alcoholics, drug addicts. My mom's still living. She's 83. She preaches in the senior citizen's home every week because the old people need help. <laughs> she prays in tongues and reads the word three or four hours a day and angels visit her. And I, and I said, Mom, you're amazing. You had such a rough life. You bury those kids. She said, rough life? She said, I wouldn't have changed places with another woman in all of history. I'm the most joyful woman there is. My dad died after a 10-year paralysis of Lou Gehrig's disease, leading, people, leading nurses to Christ up until the last days he died. Filled with joy, praying in tongues. That's how I'm going to go out. No matter how God chooses to take me, I want to go out in tongues. I want to go out in the word. I want to go out in praise. One of Tom and I's dearest friends, Ron Lewis, we've been friends 35 years. We buried his 23-year-old son this year. That kid was ORU Man of the Year, first person to lead a person to Christ in a people group. You know, sometimes God chooses to be glorified in death, sometimes in life. And here's what Ron and I determined. We fought three years to save that boy. We said no matter whether he lives or dies, we're going to go down in tongues and faith and word and that kid's death just created an avalanche of testimonies, an avalanche. We can't lose, beloved. In the dark, Jesus does his greatest work. When you can't see, he does his greatest work. He's working. Don't give up on this generation. I know it seems out of control in our country and no one's listening to us and we know where this hurricane's going to, we're going to hit a sandbar. If we need to hit a sandbar, we need to hit a sandbar. If the ship of state gets wrecked, God will just watch us up into something better. Trust me. Watch what God does in this country. Just watch. Watch. Watch how he shakes your cell. Watch how he calls for evangelism. You just say tonight, Jim, I want to fully cooperate with my Jesus in the midnight hour. Raise your hand. I'm going to pray for you right now. In fact, stand to your feet. I'll sit you back down to process over something. Stand up for a minute. Holy Ghost, I thank you. Father, I thank you for what you're doing in this hour. Lord, I thank you, God. A new day is dawning. It's just too dark to tell it. So we still think we're, we're, still think we're in this, this, this day of waiting when in reality the new day is dawning. We don't see it yet. And I'm thanking you right now. You're coming to freshly call your bride. Lord, we choose tonight to stay filled with the oil of your spirit. God, I thank you tonight in the middle of this darkness. You are working. You are moving to raise a Eutychus generation from the dead. I just receive it. Grandchildren, children, in-laws, all of it, Lord, we just thank you for raising them. Lord, in the dark night of our country where we seem, Lord, not even to see the historic stars that have guided us. Oh, ho. I want to thank you. You're going to give us a voice in this. I want to thank you. Because of our word, people will live and not die. And Lord, Father, where, Father, we find ourselves imprisoned by things tonight. I can't count my nights in the emergency room, Lord, with different things. We feel imprisoned and 
We're afraid. If a doctor doesn't have the answer, you have the answer, Lord Jesus. Lord, tonight we choose to praise you. Tonight we choose to worship you. Tonight, no matter how deep we may feel, Lord, no matter what seems to be chaining us, we praise you tonight. We worship you tonight. We say yes to you tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give the Lord a clap. Hallelujah. You can be seated. Can I take a minute and process over a few people? Is that okay? All right. All right. Wonderful. All right.